All right, kids, you are now dismissed for Children's Church. And uh, if you wouldn't mind opening up your your Bible to Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we're looking at kind of part two in our series on Pentecost before Andrew comes back to the pulpit next week. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 42 through 47. Last week, I'll remind you that we were talking about Pentecost as this watershed moment in redemptive history. It was this pinnacle moment because in the big story of what God is up to in the world, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, pours himself out on God's people 10 days after Jesus ascends to heaven and is exalted. And it's this pinnacle moment because now, instead of God's people flowing into a particular place to meet with God, God's Spirit comes on his people and pours out, and the people of God flow outwardly. And this becomes the basis for new power and new life in the Spirit. And it's the basis of all that we hope to accomplish as a church and a body of Christ at KCP because it locates us. We talked about that last week. And assures us and it changes us from the inside out. And so this week we want to ask the question as we look at this text, what does Pentecost create? Last week we said, what does Pentecost mean? This week we want to ask the question, what does Pentecost create? And so let's stand together as we hear God's word. We're going to read God's word, Acts 2, 42 through 47, and let's stand as we hear the reading of God's word. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. And had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It stands forever. But you may be seated as we dive into our passage this morning. So last summer, the pastor at my previous church, McKay, was really sick. Uh, And it wasn't COVID. And he had to check into the hospital because he had an atypical form of pneumonia. And as the bacteria began to settle in his lungs and multiply, and his white blood count went dangerously low, for a little while it looked bad, and people weren't sure how long or if he was going to make it. About the eighth day that he was into treatment, a nurse came in in the middle of the night to take his temperature. And as she took his temperature, she said, it's gone down from 104 to 103. And McKay said to the nurse, are we winning? And the nurse, and usually you're not supposed to do this, leaned down into his ear and whispered, I think we are. Now, when you think about that story, 
What in the world would give McKay or that nurse any kind of confidence that his chance of survival would go up over one degree? Over just one degree? And it's because your temperature is part of what we call vital signs. There are vital signs in every single one of us. Those vital signs include temperature and blood pressure. They include your heart rate, your oxygen saturation level, your respiration rate, and the sound of your lungs. And so when all of those vital signs are working and they're indicating that the systems that they represent are functioning correctly, then you have a really good chance of living. And yet, if those vital signs and the systems that they represent are dysfunctional, then there's a good chance that you may not live. Well, this passage, Acts chapter 2, that we're looking at this morning, are like the vital signs of the church. And what God is going to show us this morning through these vital signs is how important they are to each of us and to what he is up to in his work in the world. Now, last week, we saw something really impressive. 3,000 people were added to the church in one day. And yet, what I would argue and suggest is that what we see this morning, when these 3,000 people come into the presence of God and into his church, is equally impressive because of what changes in their behavior And we could say that those 3,000 people and the type of change that they experience is so impressive because the amount of knowledge they had about Jesus was probably on par with some of the kids in our nursery right now. These were young folks. And how did that happen? What changed? Well, three things, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. One, they began to be a people who were shaped and marked by God's truth. Secondly, they became generous by the grace of God. And thirdly, they began to be missional by his power. Those are the vital signs. They were the vital signs, and they still are the vital signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in the most essential systems of our lives. And so we want to pray this morning that those systems within us would show these very same signs of life. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and breathe new life into your people this morning, and that what you would be creating in the deepest parts of our lives is fresh grace, new mercy, and a sense of wonder and awe at the beauty of Jesus, and that we collectively as the people of God would begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness and for your word again that our thinking and our perspective would be shaped by your word, that we would become generous and that we would move out into a cynical world with power and life and vitality. These are the vital signs. And so often we would confess that they go dormant or latent in our lives and we pray for newness this year, God. We pray for newness this morning. And so come, Holy Spirit, through your word and grant New life to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, when the Holy Spirit comes, he creates a people 
who are being shaped and marked by God's truth. It means that we begin to learn and think the way that God wants us to. And so if you look at this passage, you see that this 3,000 people plus the 120 that were in the original upper room, they're being shaped because in verse 46 it says, every day they were meeting together. Now, if there are 3,000 people who suddenly start doing something that they weren't doing the previous day, you, get, you would say that their lives are being shaped, that something is changing. And to characterize what this looks like, Luke uses the word devotion. Devotion is a word that occurs six times in the book of Acts to describe this new movement of the church. And there's two components to it. There's first a time element to this word devotion. And the time that we see coming out, how frequent this was taking place, is that it was continuous. We see that they were continually devoted. And the second element that this word shows us is one of focus. It's like when you're devoted to something, there's a concentration. There's, there's this singularity of focus that this above all things has my attention. That's the idea behind the word devotion. And so this, we see, cuts against the grain in terms of the world that we live in right now and our own response when we think about commitments. We're so worried about how many things are going on in our life that we'll miss out, that oftentimes we run away from commitment and that instead of doing the hard work, to prioritize and to pray through, God, what commitments should I make? What are you up to in the world around me? We stay away from commitments, but here's the people who are driving a stake in the ground with their time and their concentration and their commitments. They were devoted. And yet this passage, the way it's constructed, is meant to show us that their devotion wasn't necessarily just about the way that they were learning God's truth, but it was also shaping their worship. And it was shaping their generosity that God was creating sort of this stick to about their culture. And he was bringing out holy hunger for all things God and his ways. And so in the verse we read earlier in Ezekiel 36, this is what God means when he says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to, to look at my laws, to keep my laws. That's the reshaping that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Now I want to ask the question, what is this reshaping all about? What is the big picture? What is the Holy Spirit actually up to in the world? And what I want to suggest is that at Pentecost, what we have is a reversal of the effects of the curse. That what the Holy Spirit is actually doing is that he is overhauling the fall of mankind from Genesis chapter 2. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, the first time that we see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Bible is in verse 2. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so the one that's being identified here in the Trinity is the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. He is the active one in creation. And when you look at Genesis 1, for the next 26 verses, what he is doing is he is creating and creating and creating all these beautiful things. And yet there's a shift in the activity of God in verse 28. He moves from creating 
to teaching. He begins to shape human beings with biblical truth, God's word. And so in verse 28, it says, be fruitful. This is to Adam and Eve, the first humans. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What does that mean? I think it means three things. That God is telling them that you human beings are to be shaped by the truth of God. And so whatever I say is meant to inform you and grow you as humans. And that as you listen to my word, it will make you more and more human. And secondly, he is saying love one another so intimately and so well that ultimately what happens through your communion is that there are more and more people just like you who love God and are in relationship with God. Multiply more and more God lovers. And number three, God says human beings take creation and so faithfully and generously rule over it the same way that I would. That's what he's giving us in Genesis 1.28. It's called the creation mandate. But notice what happens instead. Instead of being devoted to the teaching and the truth, Adam and Eve are distracted by a snake in the grass, and they accept a distorted type of teaching instead. And then number two, instead of loving each other so intimately that they reproduce more and more God lovers, they blame each other and hide from God. They blame each other for what's wrong inside of them. And thirdly, instead of generously giving themselves to the mission and causing this creation around them to flourish biologically and agriculturally and relationally, instead of that, they actually use creation to hide from God. They grab fig leaves, they cover up, they use the good things that God has created to wall off and distance themselves from God. And if we're honest, in each one of those things, you and I are tempted to do the very same things today as well. And to the degree that we do that, I want you to see this morning that we become more, less and less human. And that what Jesus is up to through Pentecost and his spirit is to make us more and more human, to get us back to this place. And so we would say that Acts 2 is not necessarily the birth of the church, it's like the burst of the church. It's more like as the Holy Spirit pours himself on, out on people, he begins making us more and more human again to send us out into the whole earth. And that's what Pentecost is. It's this great reversal of what went wrong in Genesis. And so in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, it's almost like the Holy Spirit re-enters the scene with his voice and says, as I was saying... Before I was so rudely interrupted by sin and Satan and selfishness, I want you, 3,120 people, I want you to now begin pushing back the darkness of sin again and to be reshaped by the truth of God and to begin showing the world what generosity and mission truly look like. This is the Holy Spirit doing an overhaul of the fall. 
And so how does he do that? He does that by making a devotion to the truth, by creating this concentrated, continual devotion to the teaching of the apostles so that God's word is sought, it's savored, it's valued and treasured once again. That's the reality that happens to us when the Spirit is shaping us more and more. And so we see that pictured in 1 Peter 2.2. You guys know this verse. Like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. We have families that know that truth really well right now. Nathan and Christina McKenzie, Chris and Michelle Griffin, they're seeing this up close. Their little babies, right, are saying about mama's milk, that's good. That's real good. I don't even know what that is, but I want more of that. And if you take that away from me, I'm going to cry. My soul is going to get real loud because it fills me up. And the Holy Spirit is meant to make that true of our lives as well about his word. We're to say, I want more of that. And in fact, my soul will cry if I don't have it. Because growing up in our salvation means seeing our lives reshaped, even right now, from glory to glory. Look at verses 42 through 43. There's an interesting connection between the apostles' teaching and what begins to happen around them. It says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Verse 43 adds this, and many signs and wonders were taking place through these apostles, Lame were walking. The blind were beginning to see. There was these miraculous interventions and healings all around them. The hungry were being fed. What is the connection? Well, the connection is that whenever the Holy Spirit is doing the teaching and beginning to shape our hearts and minds, right along with that, he is also bringing healing touch from the inside out. That there is a way, a dynamic in each of us, that as the word is powerfully at work in us, that emotionally and psychologically and physically in these different dimensions, we begin to move along a continuum of glory to glory. What's really happening here? Yes, the apostles, what they're seeing is miraculous and instantaneous. God can still do that, but what he's really up to here is that what was wrong with people, body and soul, became right. And what was broken got fixed, that what was helpless got helped, what was ruined got repaired. And that's why Deuteronomy 8 and Jesus in the wilderness says, you cannot live on bread alone. You are meant to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That when we live by his word, we become more human when we have the truth of God. That's devotion to the truth But we also see that there's a devotion to one another. If you look at verse 42, it says that they were devoted to fellowship. Now, fellowship does not mean fishing trips and Super Bowl parties. It's this mutual partnership. It's a relationship where there's mutual giving and receiving of this truth, of God's truth for us and our lives, a sharing of our lives together. And you can see how many people in the community were participating in this. Verse 44, all the believers were together, so there were no exceptions. They all did it. They were all participating. 
And so what that means is that what you, what you are learning about God and his truth is meant to be shared with me. It's important for me. I need it. We are not isolated. And what I am learning about God and his truth in my daily walk and in his word, somehow God means for that to come out into the lives of people around me, into the church. We are meant to do life this way together around his word. And so look at how frequent this fellowship is and how it was happening. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together. Not only were there no exceptions, but there were no interruptions. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In other words, no superficiality, but rather this deep hospitality They weren't giving pat answers to sterile questions. They were in each other's homes, and they were sharing in this authentic and vulnerable and rich and beautiful way, this connection of powerful engagement where real love could take place, real serving. And I just want to say that this is why we are not trying to just check the box with community groups here at King's Chapel. We're not just trying to check the box. And say, oh, you know, everybody, let's do that. Let's have 12 groups. But it's so that these interactions, these kind of moments, this real life, real love engagement can be fostered and cultivated. That's what we're aiming to see God do as he creates the context for these things to happen. And here's what's even more remarkable about this community. As as if it wasn't already. Look at the racial makeup of who's involved in this. If you go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 2, this is what we see, the list of who's on, on board with this. It says that there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians. There was folks from Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egyptians, people from Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. Now, here's what's amazing. When it says the people from Mesopotamia, that's Babylon. I want you to think about what we know about Babylon and how they decimated God's people for years and held them in captivity. Think about the Egyptians who were on this list. And for 400 years, they held God's people in captivity and exploited them. Do you think, I mean, just think about that. Do you think there would be some racial tension? In the room? Of course there would be. Titus 1, 12, Paul shows how deeply this is ingrained. He's quoting from this outside source, and he says, Cretans, they're here. They're always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's some good racial profiling right there. And yet, what Acts 2 shows us is that this racial, historical, cultural, even political stereotyping are no match. They are no match for the Holy Spirit giving his people the ability to love. He just blows it all away. And here we are, the people of God, spending time together and making us more and more human in the love of the Spirit. You see, I am less human when the world around me is reduced to the size of me And so Jesus says, I've loved you, so love one another the way that I've loved you. If you want to know how to love, look at me. 
be an image bearer, become more human. That's true humanity. And they were also devoted to active and expressive worship. Verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe. The word awe means an overwhelming, soul-trembling, reverential fear of God. That's what marked them. Inwardly, that's what they were experiencing. And verse 42 is how that played out externally. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to the breaking of bread and the prayer. The scholars here say that the definite article, the, is placed before the breaking of bread and also the prayer because they want us to see that this is about the Lord's Supper. It's about communion. It's about the corporate gathering of people, that his people were coming together in various contexts to celebrate these elements of worship. They were gathering together in large groups. It says every day they were continued to meet together in the temple courts. There's no other place in Jerusalem where that many people could gather. And yet they also were in small groups. Verse 46 They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God so that their worship was filled with joy. It was overflowing, deeply emotional worship. You see, when the Holy Spirit is shaping us by his truth, then our sense of awe inwardly begins to adopt holy habits of connection with God outwardly. We begin to say, I love communion. I love prayer. I love his word. I love being with God and his people. That's what God is doing with these holy habits. He's reshaping us to do what we were originally designed to do in the first creation. That's the first chapter of Genesis coming alive again, where he is filling our lives with these awe-inspiring experiences. You think about Genesis 1, and you just read through it. It's amazing to look at his creation unfold in that first chapter. And I think that our lives today are still full of awe-inspiring experiences that God has created. I mean, you think about a sunset, you think about a sunrise, you think about the Grand Canyon, you think about a newborn baby and holding it for the first time. These experiences that God gives us are to be hints of what we were designed to experience, the thrill of God in creation. And yet, when we stop at just those moments and don't see the one behind it all, then we miss something grand. We miss what he is up to. And I want you to see that that's what worship is meant to do. It's meant to bring us before his throne room again and celebrate the one who's behind the mercy and grace and the awe-inspiring experiences of our universe You think about if you were to ever go to a Thanksgiving meal, one that was gloriously planned and prepared for and the food was out of this world, could you imagine as a guest leaving that meal and forgetting to thank the host? That would never happen. And yet that's what we can do sometimes when we leave creation or we only celebrate creation and don't see the Lord of hosts, the one who's behind it. That's the joy-filled gladness that the Holy Spirit is working in his people at Pentecost and today. Well, secondly, I want you to see that what God is creating at Pentecost is a people who are generous by God's grace. 
That's the second vital sign, a a grace-driven generosity. So look at verses 44 and 45. It says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Here's the Holy Spirit recreating again what's happening in the beginning. Try to go back there in your mind. God has created everything. He owns it. And yet, what is he doing with all that he owns and all that he has? Well, Jesus models this for us. Jesus shows us what he does with all that he owns. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul says about King Jesus, our great and gracious king. He became poor, though he was rich, to make us rich so that we would be rich. He didn't say, think about this, how much can I make and how long can I keep it? Instead, he said, how much do I have and what do the people that I need, what the people that I love need? How much do I have and what do the people that I love need? And so instead of gathering and keeping resources for ourselves, we're about stewarding and giving it away. This is what Jesus said when he said, what he meant when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because when we give, we become more human, just like Jesus. If you remember in the, um, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, there's a character named Gollum. And Gollum started off as a human named Smeagol. And what was his biggest problem? He got his hands around a treasure. And as he held on to it and gripped it tight, the only thing that he could say is, my precious. He lost the ability to give. He became less and less human. And that's what happens for us when we hoard resources and we think, gosh, this is for me. And we worry about what I have and how long I can keep it. We become more human when we give. And thirdly, Lastly, we become missional. God, through his spirit at Pentecost, creates a missional people by his power. I want you to see verse 47. It says, And enjoying the favor of all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Notice the impact that this particular community is having as they participate with one another in the world around them. It's really striking. When the Holy Spirit begins to really bring a group of people alive, the world around them, they begin to have this moment where they are in conflict, that internally they wonder, what am I supposed to do with what I'm seeing there? On the one hand, I don't like these Christians very much. I don't like their beliefs. I don't like their narrow-mindedness. I don't like the things that they're saying and teaching. I just wish they would all go away. And yet at the same time, at the very same time, when the Holy Spirit is moving in a group of people, bringing them alive in the community around them, the people are also saying, but I cannot deny that these people are making the world that I live in a better place. They are fostering. They are adopting. They are mentoring. 
They are cleaning up roads. They are making this place more beautiful. They are generous. They forgive like nobody else. They handle conflict differently. They are giving away things that nobody else is giving, and they're giving when nobody else is giving. And that puts me as an unbeliever at somewhat of a crossroads. I'm starting to wonder, even though I don't like them, where we would be without them. And that's what happened actually in the early church. That as these people spread throughout Rome and throughout the Middle East, the world around them said, I'm kind of in favor of these people staying around. And they started making rules to protect them from persecution. And so not only does the presence of the Holy Spirit empowering mission move us out into the world in these unbelievably beautiful ways and creates life all around us, it also brings new life right into our very midst. It's like God is creating a nursery in his church where young believers and old believers can meet together as sinners to become more and more human together. That's the Jesus who lived and died for our sins that we grow up in him and his salvation. And that's how the church becomes a nursery where the brand new can find out what it means to be a child of God. And so that means that the evangelism and discipleship are also really important ways that we become more and more human. If you've never had the experience where someone who didn't know God yesterday suddenly does know God, and then he begins to grow up in, in his faith because you got to be a small part of that, that is exhilarating. And you begin to say as God is partnering with you, as you're spending time with this new believer and helping them grow in their faith, this is awesome. I'm not just excited that I get to see them in heaven one day, but there's a part of this joy and wonder that I have in partnering with God on mission that's woven into my humanity. It says, this is why I'm here. I was meant to take God's word out. I was meant to connect with younger believers and help them grow in the faith. Evangelism and discipleship. I'm here to help other people know and love God by pointing them to Christ to help them feel more alive in him. So these are the vital signs. Devotion to God's truth. Vital and vibrant and robust living relationships. Joy-filled worship. A generosity with your stuff. Then we're not just asking the question, how much can I make and how long can I keep it? But how much have I been entrusted with and who needs it? And we become a nursery for the for the new and for the young and for the most hurting people around us. Back to McKay in the hospital last year when he was released and he finally got out, he told me that when the nurse pushed him in the wheelchair outside of the hospital and the door, double doors opened up, he said the outside air hit him with this wave and he felt this temperature change and he felt this exhilaration. And the first thing that he did was he took a deep breath and he felt alive again. It was like he said, he said it was like I, I was alive again for the first time, almost like I had been reborn. Yes, I'm alive. And it was euphoric. So I want to ask you this morning, as you've been listening to the things that we're talking about, 
Are you taking a deep breath in right now and saying, yes, that's what I want to mark and shape my life as well? Or as you take a deep breath in of his spirit and his word, are you hacking a little bit and sputtering and saying, gosh, those things are, they've kind of not my vital signs lately. Then this is the moment when we do what we saw last week, when we repent and turn to Jesus again with faith and we look to the cross and we say, I need these life signs in me. I need your spirit. Bring new life. And yet, if you are here this morning or you're watching online and you are not a believer and you're listening to this and you take a breath in and it's getting lodged in your throat, I want to ask the question of you. Are you weary yet of the world being reduced to the size of you? Because when God invades your life through his spirit, then he takes your world and blows it up God-sized. And he brings you along into his mission, into what he's up to in the world, where he is transforming everyone and everything right around you. That's what it means to be more human, is to experience the fullness of God and to move out in the world with radical change. Let's pray together. God, We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we thank you that you have also sent your Holy Spirit to bring new life and to empower us. And it is through your spirit that you are making all things new. Thank you that you are making me new and this church new shaped by your grace, to become the image bearers of God that we were originally intended to. So God, once again, we pray that you would use this worship, this day, your truth and your spirit to converge upon our hearts, to plant seeds, and we pray that you would water them to fruition and bring about new and joy-filled and awe-filled worship and delight in the community around us. We want to be a people on mission. We want to do community well. And we cannot do it apart from you. So Holy Spirit, come this morning and bring the vital signs. Bring signs of life yet again in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.